This morning we come to a familiar passage of Scripture, a Scripture we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter 5. Perhaps this sermon is amongst the most well-known passages and most often quoted passages in all of the New Testament. And in reading through this most beloved passage, we learn at least two things. First, we learn God's standard of righteousness. This standard we're, we understand we're unable to achieve on our own. And this points us to our Savior. The Sermon on the Mount points us to Christ and his perfect righteousness. The second thing we learn is how we ought to live as God's people. How disciples of Christ should live in this world, people who have been transformed by God's grace. Here's instruction for how we ought to live in such a way that we experience blessing both in this life and in the life to come. We're going to look specifically at Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. We remember that Matthew is writing. Matthew is writing to inform his readers that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one of whom the prophets wrote. The one who would come to fulfill the scriptures. The one who would inaugurate or, or bring about the beginning of the new covenant. No longer would God's commands be written on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of his people. Verses 13 through 16 are, are preceded by the familiar verses known to us as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are, are a fulfillment, at least in part, of what the prophet Isaiah foretold concerning the kingdom that the Messiah would usher in when he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning." the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. In these words of Isaiah, we hear this refrain of healing, of restoration, of freedom from the bondage of sin. Jesus came into the world to establish his kingdom. And we're living in the time between his first and second coming. We're presently experiencing the reign of Christ as king in our hearts. And at the same time, we anticipate the return of Christ. And the final destruction of all his enemies. 
The Sermon on the Mount opens then with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, as I understand them, describe for us what truly is the blessed life. The good life. The happy life. And what we discover is that the blessed life, one that is found in our union with Jesus, is one that is contrary to our natural way of thinking. We can be duped into thinking that true happiness, true blessing, is found in wealth and in power and dominance and prestige and comfort and ease and indulgence, but this isn't true. Rather, true blessedness, true happiness is found in a life characterized by being poor in spirit. Mourning over our sins and the sins of others characterized by meekness, humility, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being pure in heart, pursuing peace, embracing persecution for the sake of righteousness. These descriptions we read in the Beatitudes of the blessed life are staunchly counter-cultural. Indeed, the entire Sermon on the Mount unpacks the counterculture nature, countercultural nature of genuine Christianity. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, quote, The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture, end quote. Christians have been called out of the world. We've been called out of the world. We're different from the world. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And the kingdom he proclaims is not characterized by worldly pomp and prestige, but rather by humility and servitude. So having begun the sermon with the Beatitudes in which Jesus describes for his followers how to live in the world in such a way that will result in blessing both in this life and the life to come. In verses 13 through 16, Jesus now reminds his disciples that their identity, that is who they are, governs what they do, just to say how they ought to live. What we see in this passage before us is understanding who we are enables us to bring glory to God by living in the world in a countercultural way. Understanding who we are enables us to bring glory to God by living in the world in a countercultural way. We're going to read from chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 together. So I would invite you to stand in honor of God as we read these verses together. Beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You can be seated. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And our prayer is that you would come, as we've already sung, that you would come and teach us. Open our eyes that we may behold Christ our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. In verse 13, we see a statement of identity followed by a warning. So let's begin here. Verse 13 begins, you are the salt of the earth. And we, by extension, as followers of Christ, are the salt of the earth. We might say we are. We are the salt of the earth. Notice the verse begins with this word, you. You is placed at the front for emphasis. You, followers of Christ. You who are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. You are the salt of the earth. Notice Jesus doesn't say, you should strive to be the salt of the earth. You should make every effort to be the salt of the earth. Rather, his is a statement of fact. This is who you are. You are the salt of the earth. And before before we move forward, we need to stop and ask this question. Well, how is it that a person is declared by the sovereign Lord of all creation to be the salt of the earth? In other words, how does a person become a follower of Jesus, a disciple? And the answer we receive from Scripture is by grace through faith. Let this truth come and wash over your weary hearts this morning. We become followers of Christ by grace, through faith. We begin by grace and we continue by grace. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and if this is true that his disciples are the salt of the earth, we must ask the question, well, what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? And I think in order to answer this question, we should consider how was salt used in the ancient world. And what we find is there are a whole host of uses. There were a whole host of uses for salt in the ancient world. And Jesus doesn't specify what particular function he has in mind here. And that being said, I think we can think of at least two functions of salt in our quest to understand the importance of our Savior's words here when he says, you are the salt of the earth. Let's consider together two functions of salt. First, salt seasons. Think about what you ate this morning or what you ate last night for dinner. Was there salt on the table? Did you salt your food? Why? Salt adds a little season, doesn't it? To be the salt of the earth is is to add some season or some savor 
The second thing salt does is preserve. In the ancient world, before refrigeration, salt was used as a preservative. It would be rubbed into meat, for example, to slow decay and to preserve that meat for later consumption. Salt preserves. It slows decay. And so as we consider these two functions of salt, we can, we can conclude with this. Salt is different. Salt is different from the thing it comes into contact with. It's unlike the thing it touches. Jesus is telling his disciples, this is who you are. And if we're in Christ, we understand that this is who we are. We are the salt of the earth. But the text doesn't stop here. No, he continues. It continues with a warning. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We must note that that salt in and of itself cannot be unsalty. One writer says this, This is not the scientifically impossible notion of salt becoming flavorless, but rather the common problem in the ancient world of salt being mixed with various impure substances and therefore becoming worthless as a preservative. Do we see? At that point, salt ceases to function as salt. It has lost its saltiness. And the point being made was that the disciples of Christ must continue to retain saltiness if they are to be effective witnesses in the world. Jesus is telling his disciples that if they fail to live in such a way that they function as salt, namely seasoning and preserving, they've ruined their witness. Their witness for Christ has been compromised they fail to live in such a way that they function as salt, they fail to live with purpose. What is our purpose? These are questions humanity asks. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? There can be no doubt for the believer that our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. We're created for his glory. The disciples were being reminded of the necessity of living the life, the new life they'd been given in Christ. And the command given by implication in this verse is be salty. In other words, live out your identity as a disciple of Jesus. Notice the order of the statements. Jesus begins with a statement of identity. Here's who you are, the salt of the earth. Before giving them a warning and a command by implication, we might say, don't forget who you are. We are the salt of the earth. We're called to be in in the earth, in the world. 
functioning as salt, seasoning, and preserving. We're to be in the world. To be sure, we're not to love the world or the things in the world. But certainly we're called to be in it. This is a warning against isolating ourselves from the world. We've seen this this error played out in, in the history of the church. Think about the monastic movement where groups of people would would leave the society and the culture and isolate themselves and live in a commune over here. This is an extreme form of isolating ourselves, but at the heart, we can commit the same error when we refuse to interact with those who are not like us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. No, we must be in, in the world, seasoning and preserving Instead of seeking to insulate and isolate ourselves from the world, we should consider our beloved Jesus and seek to imitate him. He was condemned by the self-righteous Pharisees. Why? Because he associated with tax collectors and sinners. May God help us avoid this kind of self-righteous posture toward those who don't know Christ called to be salt. So how do we function as the salt of the earth? We we look at the Beatitudes that came right before. These Beatitudes that immediately proceed, these descriptions of what characterized the follower of Jesus, namely poor in spirit, meekness, mourning over sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, extending mercy pure in heart. We move forward into the world with this humble posture, trusting that Jesus is going to do precisely what he said he would, bind up the wounds of the broken hearted. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's going to comfort those who mourn. We recognize that in this world, we're going to have tribulation. In this life, we will have tribulation. But we remember, our hope is not in this life, but in the life that we have in Christ, the life that is to come. And so we move forward into the world as the salt of the earth. And so having reminded ourselves of these truths now, we ask, well, how do I do this? How do I function as salt Let's consider three ways we function as salt. First, we function as salt in our words. We function as salt in our words. Paul writes in Colossians 4, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The believer's speech should be sweet. Salty seasoned with salt. 
Our Lord teaches us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if indeed our hearts have been transformed by the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, our speech will reflect that change. Our speech may be used to bless others, to build others up. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, we read in the Proverbs. We speak words of kindness to our neighbors. Speak words of kindness to our classmates, our co-workers, the people in our community. We function as salt in our words. Second, we function as salt in our work. Again, Paul in Colossians 3, 22, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. We have a tremendous opportunity to be salty in our work. Working hard and with excellence for the glory of God. There shouldn't be a separation of character between who we are today and who we are on Monday morning. We pursue peace with our coworkers. As the salt of the earth, we're called to be different. Third, we function as salt in our relationships. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. This is true friendship, born for adversity. We're pure in heart. We show mercy to those who don't know Jesus as Savior We function as salt in our relationships, in marriages. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What an impact! It may have if we lay down our lives for our unbelieving spouse. For grace, for grace to live so much like Christ that others will be drawn to him because of the love we've demonstrated. Be salt in the community that God has placed you. Allow the joy that you have in Christ to flow out of you in your daily interactions with others. And when we struggle to do this, let us run to our Savior and ask him to remind us of the riches that are ours in him. We remember we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. We've been set free from the bondage of sin. We've been declared not guilty by the judge of all the world. We've been given a new heart and a new mind. We've been promised an eternal home in the heavens where we will see our God and enjoy sweet fellowship with him and with all the saints forever.
As children of God, we recognize that even the most painful and trying circumstances of this life cannot rob us of our joy. The most painful and trying circumstances of this life cannot rob us of our joy. Why? Because we remember our loving Heavenly Father is making us more like His Son through the pressures and adversity of this life. The psalmist writes, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. This is beautiful. He's not afraid of bad news. This is countercultural thinking. This is countercultural living. Sorrow now gives way to rejoicing for eternity. So we've begun to see that understanding who we are, namely the salt of the earth, enables us to bring glory to God by living in the world in a countercultural way. Let's look now at the second statement before considering the command that follows. We read in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Again, by extension, we, we are the light of the world. And like the previous statement, the you is placed forward for emphasis. You, disciples, this is who you are. It's a statement of identity reminding the disciples of who they are. And we too would do well to remember who we are in Christ. It seems to me that one of, the most, one of the most effective strategies our adversary uses to derail the believer is to work to convince the believer that we are not who the Scripture says we are. How easy it is for us when we're entangled in a particular struggle in our flesh to believe the accusations of the enemy. Rather than turning from sin, confessing, and believing. Believing that the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Rather than doing that, we're prone to wallow in guilt and shame and unbelief. We forget who we are. Those who are in Christ are the light of the world. Consider what the scripture says is true for every believer. You're a new creation. You've been washed, cleansed. No longer defined by your past sins. That's not who you are. The psalmist says God separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. Ask your kids over lunch how far that is. How far is the east from the west? Your guilt has been removed. You've been forgiven. You've been justified. You have peace with God. 
You've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. You're a child of God. You've been given a new identity. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're kept by the power of God. You have an imperishable in heaven, imperishable inheritance laid up for you in heaven. Read 1 Peter chapter 1. No one can take that from us. Is it any wonder that Jesus says, you're the light of the world? If this can't be said of you, the call for you this morning is to repent and believe that you too may be called the light of the world. Since this is true, you are the light of the world, says our Lord. He says, let me remind you that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In other words, I've called you out of the world, right? To be a beacon in a dark and dying world. Now go and shine. Some of you fly often. I'm not one of those. Just flown a handful of times in my life, but I've, I've, I've flown enough to... That this picture uh, is clear to me. When you're, when you're in a plane and, and you're making your way towards your landing and it's at night and you break through the clouds and you look through those little windows, you start to see off in the distance, you see a flicker, a flicker of light as you get closer and closer to your destination. And soon the runway is in, is in view, and the lights are brighter, and their color more vivid as they stand out against the darkness of the sky. This is the picture. We're the light of the world. The collective body of believers, the church, shines in the darkness. It is true, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The text continues, people don't light lamps and put them under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. This picture makes sense to us. It would be foolish to take a light, light it, and cover it. Some years ago, my family was helping my grandma prepare to move out of her home. And, and one of the things I inherited was a lamp. It was one of these old oil lamps. Maybe you've seen these. with a big globe on the bottom and a, and a big fat wick. And I can remember being impressed at how much light this lamp put off. We've experienced something like this where the lights are out in your house. It's pitch black until someone, someone turns on a small light and the light pierces the darkness. Here is the picture we, the children of God, are light in the dark world. We shine as the light. And this light we have is light that's derived from the true light, Jesus. He came into the world as the light of the world and declared, I am the light of the world. This is who I am. And now he says to his followers, you you're the light of the world. The command now follows, let your light shine before others so that, here's the purpose, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
This is our final point. We must let our light shine. If you've been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't help but shine. You're different. You think differently. You speak differently. You spend your time differently. You spend money differently. When Jesus transforms an individual, the change that takes place is all-encompassing. Jesus doesn't halfway change a heart. The change is complete. Jesus changes us from the inside out. The promise of the new covenant is this. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. The old man dies with Christ. Romans 6.4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Once in darkness, now in light. Walk as children of light. Do you remember the story in John chapter 9 of the man born blind? I love this story. Jesus heals this man who had been born blind. And the Pharisees can't hardly stand it. Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath And so they come and they interrogate this man and his parents trying to figure out just what happened. And in verse 24 we read, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, that is Jesus, we know that this man is a sinner. And the man who had been healed, he answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is glorious. This is what happens in every heart of every person who has been transformed by the powerful working of God. Once darkness, now light. The change is internal. Perhaps you can remember when you were changed. I remember when the Lord removed the blinders from my eyes. And going to church the next Sunday, it's as if someone had literally flipped on the lights and turned up the sound. I could hear now. And I could understand what was being said. This is the work of the Spirit. We once were dead, but now we are alive. We are the light of the world. Proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. Tell the world what he's done. Say with the psalmist, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. 
yet they are more than can be told. Revel in the goodness of our Lord. Consider the mighty acts of God in bringing you to himself. Remember that we once were dead in trespasses, but now we're a new creation. Let your light shine. How do we let our light shine before men in such a way that God is glorified? We consider the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't give ourselves to anger by his grace. We put anger away from us and seek reconciliation with the one who has something against us. We put off lust. We strive for sexual purity. God is glorified in this. And our light shines brightly in the midst of a dark and sensual culture. We say, no. That's not who I am. That's inconsistent with who I am in Christ. We do to others as we would have them do to us. We're people of our word. Here's how we shine. We follow through with what we say. We're people of integrity. We don't seek personal vengeance and retaliation. What an opportunity to shine brightly in a me culture that encourages us to get even with anyone who looks at us wrong. Here's an opportunity to shine. We give to those in need. We love our enemies. We do good to those who harm us. We let our light shine before others as we endure, when we endure, with joy through various trials. We let our light shine before others when we endure with joy through various trials because we know that our hope is in our beloved Savior who will do this. He will give us a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. It's coming. And the oil of gladness instead of mourning. We shine brightly by living in a counter-cultural way. Randy Alcorn in his little book, The Treasure Principle, says, we must live for the line, not the dot. We live for eternity, not the here and now. We are the light of the world. We're different. We have several nightlights in our house. And on these nightlights, there's, there's a little sensor. Maybe you've seen them. And as, as light floods a room, those little nightlights get dimmer and dimmer until light permeates the room and the nightlight goes out. And the darker it becomes, the brighter these nightlights shine. This is analogous to our lives. If we live just like the world, we will be indistinct from the world. And we'll fail to fulfill the purpose for which we've been called. 
But when we live in a countercultural way, when we're poor in spirit, recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy, when we mourn over sin, when we're meek, when we pursue righteousness and peace, our light shines brightly and our Heavenly Father is glorified. The Sermon on the Mount points us to Jesus and gives us instruction for how we ought to live as disciples of Christ. Understanding who we are enables us to bring glory to God by living in the world in a counter-cultural way. And as we await for the return of our Lord, we remember that though we live in a corrupt, decaying, dark, and dying world, we, by God's grace, have been called to be salt and light, seasoning and preserving and illuminating and doing good deeds for the glory of God. May God give us grace to remember who we are so we might live in conformity to the one who has redeemed us. Father, we bless you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves, but you've given us Christ. You've revealed yourself to us. You've saved us by your grace. And you've given us instruction on how to live, how to live in such a way that you are glorified. This is our prayer. Please help us this week to bring you glory by doing good deeds in such a way that people would see us and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.